to our online audience and welcome to this final installment of our Science in Life webinar series on rare diseases. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I have the honor of moderating today's panel discussion. This is the last webinar in our nine-part series focusing on rare diseases. If you'd like to watch previous webinars in this series, you can go to science.org slash webinars. That's webinars with an S. And this event will also be archived there within a few days of broadcast. This series has taken a deep dive into the issues, challenges, and successes in the field of rare diseases, including diagnosis and detection, testing, research hurdles and opportunities, mental health challenges, and pathways to solutions. After getting well into the weeds in previous webinars, today we're going to pull back and take a broader look at what it means to be rare or unique, and how our societies and cultures, as well as our medical systems, perceive this. We'll also talk about what being unique means in terms of our health and healthcare. Finally, thank you very much to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. I'm so pleased to be joined today by a wonderful group of panelists. As always, I'm going to have each of them uh, introduce themselves to you and tell you a little bit about what they do and what brings them to, to this discussion. So we're going to start with Dr. Ioannis Pavlidis. Uh, Ioannis, uh, thanks for joining us and over to you. Thank you very much, and I'm very glad to be here. Um, uh, I'm Ioannis Pavlidis. Uh, I'm, uh, a professor of computer science at the University of Houston in Houston, Texas. Most of my research is in effective uh, computing, uh, particularly the role of stress in critical human-to-human uh, -human and human-machine interactions. Under certain conditions, uh, this could lead to catastrophes like aviation accidents and other bad things, and that's my connection to Rare. I also have been doing some work in science convergence, which I believe is the best way to address challenging problems such as the ones that we will talk today. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ioannis. Uh, uh, let's uh, go next to Dr. Ines Pinheiro. Uh, welcome to you, Ines. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, first of all, for, for, for the opportunity to be part of this panel. My name is Ines Pinheiro, and uh, after a, a PhD and a postdoc uh, in molecular biology, more precisely in the fields of epigenetics, I uh, became a project manager at the Curie Institute in Paris, where I'm working on two collaborative projects, and one of them precisely um, trying to understand uh, disease onset and progression at the level of the single cell. And I'm very happy to be here and looking forward to our discussions. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Ines. Uh, our third panelist today is Dr. Judith Kaup. Uh Judith, please go ahead. So good to join you. I am a member of the Choctaw Tribe of Oklahoma. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist, and my practice has focused uh, both practice and research on women's health, including global health. I'm also a specialist in palliative care, uh, working with patients where cure is not possible. So I'm very interested in this uh, webinar and how we can affect better conversations around uh, both rare diseases uh, and common diseases such as cancer. Thank you so much, Judith. And our final panelist today is Dr. Terence Forrester. Welcome, Terence. Thank you very much. It really is a privilege to be here and part of this discussion. I'm a physician scientist at the University of the West Indies, the Mona campus, which is located in Jamaica. Um, my principal interest is human resilience, and in particular, interventions that improve human resilience in the setting of severe malnutrition in childhood. When a child is malnourished, the development of that child is permanently altered. And so we're very keen to intervene to prevent, but especially to reverse if possible and mitigate if not. Um, and coming to this discussion, therefore, from the perspective of phenotype and how early developmental impacts change how an organism, a human being develops and adds to the uniqueness of the phenotype that evolves. So looking forward to our discussion. 
Thank you so much, Terence. And uh, I, I wanted to remind you, we are mostly going out to a, a, a lay or non-scientific audience with this webinar. So I'm going to get you to define phenotype in a, in a little while so that people understand that and understand what you do. Um, but the first question I'm going to come to you all with, um, and we, we touched on this in the description of the webinar, if, if people read that before this event or if they want to go back and read it now, it's on the, the webinar page that you're watching, um, that we, we are almost identical genetically um, as human beings, but what makes us unique and what makes us each different? Um, so Terence, maybe we'll start with you and you can let us know your thoughts on this. Sure. Um, at, the, at the core of each of us, of any living thing is a DNA sequence, which is the messenger, which when properly translated, leads to structure, anatomy, function, physiology, um, the chemistry, biochemistry, and the molecular and cellular activities, those little messengers going back and forth. Um, even though, as in identical twins, uh, DNA sequence can be identical, the phenotype, that is the anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, and molecular biology that makes up that individual can be very different depending on how uh, during formation in utero and the first few years of life, the interaction between that evolving person and the environment, maternal environment and postnatal environment, influences the control systems of the DNA. It's the control systems, the programs that it tells the DNA to play that determines whether you're five foot tall or seven foot tall, whether you are skinny or you're 300 pounds heavy, whether in this case you might develop a rare disease or whether you are through exposures more susceptible to others. Um, so perhaps the iconic example is identical twins with identical DNA sequences really do end up with completely different sometimes anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, molecular biology, and how they think of themselves and how they present themselves to the world. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll turn to Judith next to, to talk about the disease side of, of this equation. Uh, Judith, could you? help us understand that? We have very common uh, problems with patients, even in the same family having cancer, but the cancer arises at different ages and the exposures, as Terrence was saying, may be quite different. In, for example, in breast cancer, whether a woman has children early or late in life, uh, whether someone smokes or not, uh, whether their diet is adequate. All of these things are what we, com we consider as risk factors for the development of cancer that interacts with whatever they were born with as far as the genetics. Um, there's been a lot of interest in recent years on genes such as mutations in the BRCA gene. But even within the same family, two women can have the same mutation, carry that same gene. One will never have cancer, but perhaps 80% of the women in that family will have breast cancer, ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, all from a common mutation, but it gets expressed in different ways. Mm -hmm. and, and Judith, I'm assuming that this could equally apply to any particular rare disease that has a genetic basis. It would be the same as cancer. In, in essence, a cancer is a rare disease uh, in many cases, right? Yeah. A rare mistake that uh, the immune system uh, doesn't find those cells and doesn't uh, destroy those cells. Uh, so um, many things happen in our lifetime, but not everything yields a, a difficult result such as cancer. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Ioannis, maybe we'll come to you next. Yes, and uh, in addition to all this, I would say that all of us, perhaps, were becoming uh, unique every day in uh, small ways. For example, uh, take the case of our diet. Uh, that affects our gut microbiome. And recent uh, research suggests that uh, this may have far-reaching consequences, including behavioral effects. Mm -hmm. Great. And uh, Ines, what are your thoughts? Yes, and uh, I think we already went through quite uh, a comprehensive list, but I can only agree with uh, with the other panelists. I think that 
of course, uh, a range of stimuli that make uh, our our physiology and also the, the onset and progression of many diseases unique in each of us. Just like Ioannis was saying, uh, the microbiota, the metabolism, the hormonal uh, signs, uh, I think the list uh, can be very long uh, to make mm -hmm. to make us unique. Mm. Right. Uh, so the, the next... So yep, go ahead, go ahead. It's also an important factor, especially in everything happening around the world today, uh, the effect of stress on disease, um, not only in terms of who gets disease, but also when they get it. So mm -hmm. if we could better understand and have more research on things like resilience, why do two people respond differently to uh, the stresses of, of modern life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I think I think that's an important point to bring in as well is the the mental health aspect of um, physiological disease, and I think that's something that has maybe been ignored in the past, but now is is certainly coming to the fore. Um, Terence, I don't know if you wanted to to comment on resilience uh, since it's it's connected to your work. Um, there are so many different uh, expressions of or concepts of resilience, but one that I'm thinking of when I discuss it is the capacity to respond to any perturbation, any stress, um, to maintain function, and then to go back to normalcy. And there's an added dimension that sometimes if the stress is extreme, when you go back, you actually go back with a, a larger, a higher, a bigger capacity to deal with adversity down the line. Um, if you were to, if I were to marry both the previous point about neurocognitive and resilience and express it within the context of malnutrition, now malnutrition is rare. We tend not to think about it in richer Western societies, but it affects perhaps a third of the world's population. That's a few billion people as well. And one of the things that malnutrition will do during the development of a person in utero in the first three to five years of life is change the way the brain is structured and therefore the way the brain uh, interacts with the environment to create cognitive abilities, abilities for emotional regulation, such that uninterrupted or unintervened, someone with malnutrition will perform poorly in school, poorly as an economic unit later on. And very importantly, um, between emotional regulation and affective, that is mood, uh, end up more likely to be in contact with the judicial system um, and incarcerated. So it's a huge global problem. And so interventions are absolutely required to improve resilience, even within those circumstances where we can't do anything about the political, social, and overall economic circumstances of people. So that, that's one example of trying to get a resilience, brain function, and um, resilience. So I'd like to touch on um, a, sort of a more social science side of this. Um, and Yanis, uh, um, I'm going to come to you with this question. Uh, frequently, when we look at, at villains in movies, um, we, the, the villains more frequently have uh, physical deformities or what you know, we might flag as a rare disease or some sort of disease. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the latest uh, movie, Dune, uh, any of the James Bond movies, Batman... Uh, to mention just a few, um, and yet the, the, the main character, the hero, is often physically very well-formed, although sometimes has their own emotional defects. So I, I wanted to just ask you your thoughts on this and the, the rest of the panel as well, as far as how this sort of ties into how we perceive rarity, uniqueness, and, uh, you know, physical defect, defects. Yes, uh, it's quite interesting. As you said, uh, usually the heroes are handsome or beautiful, uh, mathematically defined, uh, if you like, if you see the face as a function, that's probably the average of all human faces. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, the hero has uh, some extraordinary abilities. So, um, on one hand, visually, you have uh, a trend towards average and sameness. But on the other hand, uh, you have a trend towards the extraordinary on the action side. So. It's an example of coexistence of uh, rare and same, so to speak, which I think uh, 
we'll probably come along uh, later on in our discussions, but uh, that's the way I see that. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have any, any thoughts on that, Ines? Yes, I, uh, I was actually thinking precisely about why uh, indeed we have this tendency to put phys um, to choose people or, or, or to put characters with uh, physical uh, deformities as being the villains. And I think it might also have to do with the fact that for a long time we could not necessarily explain them. And I think perhaps some religious or superstitious beliefs uh, led us to think uh, in general in a certain way uh, how some cultures uh, perceive such kind of problems as, for example, a curse in the family, uh, so a more superstitious problem, mm. um, which I think could could be playing a role uh, here in this example of pop culture. But I don't know if my colleagues have mm -hmm. anything to add. Yeah, I see something on this. So one of the issues that might be at play here is opportunities for improvement in global science literacy. Why do I say that? So if you think of our experiences, um, the way we develop phenotypes, they really, the, the, even though there's massive variation in early influences on how we develop, they really are bounded in fairly narrow confines. We think of climate, weather, nutrition, technology, medicine. You know, most global exposures have a, have a boundary. And so we tend to all become normal, modal expression and fairly narrow limits. Um, and we don't tend to see the continuity between that distribution and an individual that might lie a little bit outside our usual experience that we are aware. Um, so for example, if I were to use a, a really speculative example, most of us have two eyes that look forward. There's a certain space in between the eyes. If the spacing is variable, going laterally and laterally, it is conceivable that we might have someone with lateral eyes. Now, if you see somebody with lateral eyes, there is a, there's a neurocognitive um, development uh, response. When we, the brain is set up in a way, it learns by detecting differences. And so if our usual exposure is similarity and recognizability and dependence, and then all of a sudden you see somebody three standard deviations away, there's an alert, and it's a different emotional and psychological response. Now, that's a big mouthful, but if somehow that as well as concepts of global warming, climate change, et cetera, could be understandable because of the tools that education provides global school communities, I think our fight with rarity and stigmatization might be more easily overcome. Mm -hmm. So maybe if I could paraphrase, so essentially exposure to more difference allows us to understand that as more within that normal range than outside of our, our normal uh, perceptions. Perhaps um, a little tweak. So understanding that the normal range is there because that's, that's a product of a fairly narrow environment, but that there is a thread that connects the people at the edges of that distribution to the unusual presenters, person with two eyes where the ears are instead of two eyes in the front. But understanding the continuity and the inherent value of that individual depends not only on philosophy, it depends really on science literacy. In the same way that understanding global warming is dependent on climate, on, on, um, on apprehending science, science literacy, or vaccine hesitancy, or any one of these entities that require people to look at a range of facts or observations and come to a decision about them. Not sure if I'm being too nebulous. Um, <laughs> maybe Judith or Alice can can expand a bit. No, I I think that's good, and I, I actually think I, I'd like to come to Judith because I think this brings us nicely to sort of the next part of our conversation, which is. Um, investigating our differences and putting them in the context of the whole. And, uh, and I wanted to particularly focus on modern medicine. Um, and the, the, the question for you, Judith, is, is, is modern medicine too focused on the, the specific diseases or tissues um, and on the sameness rather than the differences? Um, and uh, um, 
the, the understanding, does this make the understanding um, and the treatment of rare diseases more difficult for, for physicians? some tendencies to look at the individual only as opposed to the group and the that poses some cultural issues for a lot of environments where it's the health of the group as a whole that is valued by the society let's say a small native american tribe where they are interested in preserving culture and the family structure and so forth. In those situations, the individual is not as important as the whole tribe. And it poses a problem for how does that individual get the specific care that they need that is, you know, maybe a unique cancer that has developed and how do they seek resources outside of their home environment? How much access do they have? How much understanding how much support do they have for the journey into the medical world that they have to engage in order to get the help that they need. When we were talking as uh, Terrence was talking about, you know, looking at things as unique, different, how your eyes are placed, etc. I was thinking about how it was not so long ago that I worked with women on the issue of fat babies you know, that traditionally having a fat baby was a good thing. It was a healthy baby. But when the nutrition changed from breastfeeding to uh, to all of the, the Western way of, of feeding our babies and we had fat babies, now all of a sudden we have diabetes occurring very, very young uh, in, in tribes, um, not only in the United States, but around the world, obesity is now a problem. It used to be a marker for survival, and now it's a marker for other diseases, common diseases such as diabetes and cancer, but also rare diseases that might include um, maldistribution of fatty substances into blood vessels, into the brain, into tissues. Um, and so there is a, a perception that has to be overcome for us to be able to look at preventive measures for whole societies as well as for individuals who might be afflicted. Mm -hmm. Great. Any other thoughts? Actually, I was going to comment that uh, the diagnostic framework, uh, which was uh, traditionally based on observation and developed over three millennia, uh, by nature works based on abstraction. So it um, uh, target sameness to some degree rather than uh, differences. And uh, genomic testing, which is a recent development and uh, points more to microclassifications, uh, I think is a new kid in the block. So we should give it some time. And uh, I believe that's where most of the progress in rare diseases has been happening in ways. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Uh, Ines, did you, would you like to add something? Yes, uh, precisely because yes, since I've been working on a, on a project that seemed to, that was very focused on uh, more individualized um, uh, measures to tackle some diseases, I think one way I always like to think about it was not not only that we would go towards a more personalized or individualized model, but that these kind of methodologies would allow us to have more commons. Uh, because I think this is also what we would find. We would have more granularity into each common, and I think we would find more of them. Uh, so perhaps I think that's also a way sometimes of, of phrasing these kind of new approaches that might not be so individualized, but allowing us to have uh, more and more data to be more adapted to, the, to each particular situation. So, you know, I, I think um, granularity, focus, um, diagnostic um, accuracy, I think has value insofar as they underline not only effectiveness of any medical approach, but also safety. And so if we think that those are good things, we should keep them. But if you look at things from the other side that we've been hinting at, that is assuming that we give 
let's say, a treatment that is directed at the mode that is the most common phenotype that exists. Um, it might have different effects going across the distribution as you differ more and more from that mode. And so perhaps our growing attention on the phenotype and how that phenotype will respond to treatments or respond to exposures, as Judith was saying, is, I think, um, a, a, a critical growth area in understanding not only the experience of most people to common diseases, but how rare diseases might express themselves. Um, let me maybe just come back to something that Judith talked about that I'd like to, to, to touch on again, um, and that is the, the impact of culture and religion um, on a patient's uniqueness and, and their diagnostic odyssey, I guess, as well. Um, Judith, could you talk to that? And um, You know, I know they, they say never, never discuss religion, but I think it's, a, it's an important topic to touch on because I think it, it impacts many people's lives in very fundamental ways. And when you're talking about traditional cultures, uh, such, my, uh, such as my own Native American group, uh, religion can be a great source of support for people going through uh, a, a major uh, health problem. Um, it can lead to misunderstandings, of course, uh, as far as um, how does modern medicine affect the individual uh, and uh, how does someone stay um what consistent with their cultural values while still seeking to be treated as an individual uh and i, I think that's a challenge for us in many different parts of the world and and certainly in many different parts of the united states um, but if we don't recognize the spiritual component if we just treat people in a mechanical fashion fashion we don't honor them so we need to acknowledge uh, that aspect of humanity as well. Mm -hmm. right, thank you. Uh, any other thoughts on that from the rest of the panel? Uh, okay, we'll, we'll move on. I, I understand <laughs> the sensitivity of that. So um, I guess I, I wanted to come back to Terence maybe with, with this next question, um, and that is, and, and Judith and, and actually all of you might want to comment, um, could researching rare diseases provide a pathway to, to better understanding our physiology and biochemistry more deeply and poten potentially provide insights uh, into related and more common uh, or even unrelated diseases? Um, Terence, any thoughts on that? Yes. Um my perspective is very prosaic. It's old-fashioned, old-body physiology, maybe systems physiology. So one of the key ways in which science understands systems in order to manipulate them, in this case, make people better, is by perturbing a system. So many systems go along in a, in a state of repose, of equilibrium, and how it behaves then is bounded by the internal stimuli. So they may look quiescent and may look lazy, may even look asleep. You come along with a perturbation and any live system is going to respond with a view to managing that, that stimulus and then returning to normalcy. Um, so perturbation is a, is a great mechanism for understanding simply by observing how an entity responds to uh, a stimulus. In one way, therefore, I wonder if we might look at rare diseases, that is the genes and the downstream effects of the genes as a sort of perturbation, unusual perturbation to our systems that therefore will, give, will, will create unusual stimuli and lead to unusual responses of the body in an adaptive or regulatory response. And therefore, in that conceptual sense, rare diseases might pose as perturbations and therefore help our understanding of disease. But as I say, it's a, it's a, it's a very classical physiological view and I'm sure there are other views around the table. Yes, I would, I would like to follow up and give an example actually from my own research regarding this topic. Um, 
A couple of years ago, we started doing uh, some study on uh, people who suffer from tachophobia. That's the condition where people are afraid of speed. Uh, in uh, some cases, to the point that they cannot even drive or they drive, but they have tortured uh, time. So we followed um, uh, some people, it's a rare disease or so we thought, uh, that uh, suffer from this condition, about 10% of the sample and uh, the rest of the sample supposedly was normal. So we monitored them using unobtrusive methods while they were uh, driving in the city. And we found out from uh, peripheral physiological responses that an additional 40% of the sample had also abnormal um, physiological responses in as simple things as uh, stop and go in uh, city traffic when you have uh, small amounts of acceleration. And I guess they were not as extreme as uh, the responses of the tachophobic people, but they were significant enough and somehow they were embedded in their baseline. So they were not even aware of their condition unless you started digging um, very deeply with uh, psychometric questionnaires and so forth. And uh, that uh, brings me to the point how a rare condition can lead you to uncover something that is laying under the surface and affects significant portions of the population. And the whole thing is uh, seen now as a continuum, rather as a binary decision-making point, which I believe is one of the problems with uh, the current diagnostic methods we have, and they do disservice actually when it comes to rare diseases. That's a, that's a fantastic example. Uh, Ines, you look like you might want to add something. Yes, if I can add something. I, I mean, of course, I completely agree that uh, having hand-in-hand -hand these uh, kind of research lines where you have the physiological in, in, on one side and the pathological on the other will always help us to understand either way, uh, understand better what, uh, what is happening. In the case of rare diseases, well, first of all, uh, being a public health priority, I think it will be uh, also a priority in the research programs uh, in many uh, places. And also with the high incidence of neurodevelopmental prob uh, problems among these rare diseases, I think it is also like um, quite, this, this will be quite important for us to understand better the physiology of the brain development. So I think here, uh, this is a system where uh, we want to have access to information into a tissue that is so difficult. So I think this will uh, lead the path to the development of tools that will allow us precisely to have access to this. And also, many of these modifications occur uh, during prenatal development, which uh, also um, uh, is a sensitive time and also with many challenges for research in terms of um, having access to the proper material, let's put it this way, to, to, to study these diseases. So I really see them as uh, uh, an opportunity or, 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 or something that uh, field that can lead the path. Um, right, thank you. I agree. Uh, it would be so helpful if people realize that in understanding rarities, we understand the whole spectrum of what goes normal or abnormal or somewhere in between uh, and that that knowledge is beneficial across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is a lovely example that uh, Johannes brings up uh, because something that was uh, I've touched on a few times that came up in one of our previous webinars uh, on rare diseases is the huge undiagnosed population so, you know, those 40% of people that was, were suddenly picked up when you, when you measured the right thing, um, I think, uh, you know, is a, is a really good example of the many people out there with what we would term rare diseases who have not been diagnosed or don't even know that they have something until, I think as Terence was saying, they're challenged by some sort of perturbation um, that brings out that, that disease. So, um, what I'd like to do is, is come to Johannes with this thought and um, also a question about technology. So what is the future of our, of our technologies that will enable us to pick up this large undiagnosed population? And I, you know, I'm thinking you know, biological tools, in silico tools, uh, and obviously AI. 
Right. So, uh, as you said, uh, AI, but also data science, right? Because AI cannot do a thing unless it has the right data to operate upon. And uh, that comes to uh, the data part. Uh, and as we speak, uh, we produce more and more data uh, all the time. For example, the smartwatches we wear, they sense our physiology, our uh, moving patterns, uh, uh, we leave digital uh, footprints uh, in the physical <laughs> and the virtual space. Uh, genomic testing is a commodity. Almost everybody has done one. Uh, all this data coming together uh, and operated upon by the appropriate uh, neuronic engines will eventually deliver the solution that you alluded. But of course, <laughs> along uh, with the good things uh, come the bad things. Uh, this uh, gives uh, unprecedented access to privacy, uh, uh, maybe um, citizen um, rights and so forth. And it should be treated with uh, due diligence and uh, thoughtfulness, but uh, pretty much that's the way. It's, um, um, it's a challenging uh, uh, thing in one sense, but it's uh, very exciting in another. So it comes... Uh, it comes with SAID, so to speak. And that's neither good nor bad. Uh, the principles of how we use that data and how we organize that data is going to help us or help society uh, towards new paradigms. But the human brain wants to always put things in boxes and who develops that algorithm will make a difference in terms of whether there is inherent bias in how we look at different rarer groups or how that data is interpreted. So we need to have consumer protections. We need to have personal privacy protections, but we also need the input that says, here's how the data should be used for good, but here's data that can not be useful at all uh, and only obfuscate uh, where society needs the benefit. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think I would, I would probably add that transparency is, is very important, you know, just looking at uh, the, what's happening with Facebook uh, at the moment and the, the way that algorithms are hidden um, in the way they, they process information. So, uh, um, Ines, maybe I could come to you with, with the, this same question, but from a biological aspect, uh, you know, what are some of the, the, the tools that are being used in biology and will sequencing, you know, genome sequencing uh, give us what we're looking for? I think so. I think genome sequencing would definitely give us a lot of answers or provide us even a tool because then we could also have better policies for uh, prenatal screening, for example, and start treating patients of rare diseases as early as possible, possibly even if possible before the onset of the first symptoms, because then the chances that uh, these people respond successively to the treatment will, of course, course, um, increase. Uh, before I go to, I think, one of the, what I consider that could be one of the, the, the biological tools of the future, I would also want to like to comment on the AI tools and on the, um, on the issues of privacy, for example. I think for the rare disease field, something that is very important to consider is that if we want to have solid databases where we can have the maximum information, we might need to share the data across borders so that we have uh, a number of patients or num a certain amount of data allowing us um, to, to draw conclusions. And there, I think it's, uh, of course, a major uh, challenge. Uh, and we will, of course, need to involve the specialists to overcome these challenges and also listen to society and to their uh, concerns. Uh, when it comes to biological tools, uh, something that I consider very important for this field is how uh, right now we are, of course, not only doing what was done before of putting cells of the patients in culture to study them, to study what these mutations do, but also to study possibly therapies. But now from these cells, we can um, grow them in 3D so that they 
acquire a certain complexity that is more uh, resembling an organ of, of this patient. And so I think this will be a very important tool because uh, usually cells, they also respond to their environment, to, their, to the spatial organization of, of the organ where they are. And, uh, and having these structures, I think, will give us a more accurate view on the mechanistic insights of the disease. But also if we want to test a drug to see if it works for this uh, certain patient, we might have also a better answer. I do think in all the years that I've done cancer research, that it's very apparent that cancer patients are both um, self-interested, but also very altruistic uh, and want to contribute. Uh, they will frequently say, this may not work in time to help me survive, but if it helps the next person survive or someone in my family to uh, have better quality of life, then let me contribute. So I think giving people the opportunity to contribute, but also to opt out uh, is important. Uh, and as you say, with rare diseases, you need the numbers to be able to be able to draw conclusions. Um, and, and I think there are people of goodwill and philosophers and policymakers who are trying to thread that needle as to what benefits the individual as well as society. Mm -hmm. I introduced something that um, we've probably taken for granted, which is communication in medicine and how it might impact some of the things that we're discussing. So I, I could give a really silly example, but it's a real example. Um, seeing somebody with diabetes who needed to do a dietary change and referring them to the dietitian and it came back with a long list of things to do. And then on review two or three weeks later, John, on being asked, well, John, how are you getting on with the diet? He says, very well, sir. Um, I have my diet first and then I have my meal, uh, which is it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the issue around communication in the public sphere about medicine, which is very values-based, which has language that is very uh, difficult to penetrate in the public setting, I think, uh, imposes on us a responsibility to really examine how we communicate. Um, you spoke about the usual ways in which people are getting information and without you know, singling out any particular platform, there is this tendency, misinformation or not, for information to appear to be uh, of equal standing, equal value, and the capacity of everyone to look at that information, to curate it, and to subject it to certain considerations to assess how valid and therefore how useful it is, 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 is not a skill set that is widely available or not to, not to a functional extent. And so I, I probably just raised the communication aspect by using first a silly example and then embedding it within a digital age where so much information is available and people have too few tools to evaluate and select based on some logical metric rather than a misinformation cascade. Mm -hmm. So coming back to, oh, sorry, Johannes, please go ahead. Yeah, I, I wanted to just add that um, in uh, the grand scheme of things, um, it will be done much like Facebook, as you mentioned, is doing it right now and manages to deliver these individualized ads to us. It needs persistent monitoring of a large amount of data about everything we do and we are about. And uh, that's probably the way that is going to be done when it comes to individualized medicine as well. So thank you. That's actually perfect because I, I was going to bring up that term individualized me medicine, which is, is what I believe Innes was talking about, you know, where you take a particular patient cell put it in culture, a culture dish, grow it, and see how it responds to various drugs or treatments. Um, so my, my question is, is, is this the future of medicine, this individualized medicine? And I know that's a, a big question. And one of the parts that I'd like to consider is, we've talked about cultural aspects, but also the cost of something like that. There's 
many countries that can't afford to do this, um, and a lot of these, these treatments are really only done in, in wealthy Western nations. So um, maybe I'll throw this over to, to uh, Judith and see if you have any thoughts from a, a cancer perspective initially. You know, definitely we face the issue of uh, what is the cost effectiveness of different medicines and when you're dealing with rare diseases, how much is enough research to come up with a drug and, and then who can pay for it? Can insurance pay for it? Can the family pay for it? Can GoFundMe pay for it? Uh, and, and so it does pose a, uh, a philosophical and a, uh, a cultural um, dimension to it. What I think about, however, is the amount of money also that's wasted on ineffective therapy. So as the price of, of doing whole genome analysis has come down, 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 if it gets down to a certain dollar level, it will be cost effective broadly across the world. And then if you could pick the right medicine for the right patient at the propitious time when it's going to do the most good, not when the patient's already dying of their cancer, for example, then that will be the, the most cost-effective treatments that we can render. Or a rare disease, uh, as we've been talking, if it's something that could be defined in utero, is there a way for us to develop mechanisms to fix that enzyme or fix that gene before it becomes um, a disaster for the patient and the family? So we aren't quite there yet for a lot of those things, but and look at some of the amazing gene therapies that have been developed in recent years to cure, for example, blindness, hereditary blindness in children. Very rare gene, but now there is a commercial uh, treatment for that. Very expensive, not exactly what we would hope would happen, but when there's no treatment except to have blindness for your whole life, it's a cost-effective treatment. So we need to look at where is that balance between the common good and the good for people who show up with those rare processes or where we might detect them early enough to not have them lead to a, a lifetime of poor health. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you, Judith. Um, Terence, did you have any thoughts? I could pass this round. <laughs> no problem. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, so I think in, in the time remaining, I wanted to uh, just sort of touch on, on the, the more individual aspects um, of our conversation. Um, there is real individual harm when we're unable to get our arms around difference. Um, this is in, includes intolerance and discrimination, some of the other things that we've, we've talked about. So what do you think is the toll at the level of the individual um, and their family and their community, and what is the, the broader cost to society? Johannes, um, maybe I'll, I'll have you start off on this one. Yes, uh, the cost uh, could be severe, and intolerance uh, usually leads to violence. If it does not lead to violence, it certainly leads to uh, misery. And uh, I believe uh, a good way to overcome all this is uh, through uh, persistent uh, doses of small doses of difference. And I see several historical examples where I think uh, this worked quite well. Take, for example, the case of um, gay rights and recognition in, in America, right? When it started in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, the majority of the population was probably either indifferent or against it, but uh, uh, then uh, through persistence and uh, small victories after 20 years or so, uh, things are completely different. So that was a case of something uncommon, uh, relatively rare for the time that uh, persisted and in a small step uh, eventually triumphed. And uh, I think uh, that's uh, probably a good model to, to address this, uh, this issue. And I do think it comes down to having communication that's accurate and that leads to a full education about whatever the, the disease or the condition or the societal 
problem is I can remember very clearly in my starting my research where you could not even go into a meeting with tribal members and use the word cancer. People would get up and walk out because there was the feeling that this would bring that disease upon anyone who talked about it. So we've come a long ways in in that regard. Um, And similarly, some of these other societal issues uh, have evolved. uh, And um, I think that uh, not only does science have to evolve, but um, human nature has to be put to the test of evolving and that we are, we do have brains, we do get educated, we can change, and we need to focus on, on how to provide the opportunity for, for good change to occur within society. Thanks very much, Judith, for that. It, it, it triggered in my mind uh, the tension that many of us had. Certainly, I'm acutely aware of it, which is um, will we ever be able to live harmoniously together? Um, whether it is embracing differences across a health spectrum or differences across geography and culture. So when, when, I, when, when I'm tempted to get down, I can't take the 100,000 view of it. So if you look at it, I mean, we fairly rapidly come from family groupings, getting together, kinships, tribal, tribal alliances, and nation states. So we are ambivalent now about going beyond nation states towards globalization. Um, but I think some of the tools that we are having now, digital tools, are really driving that phenomenon. Um, in a kind of an extreme example, I wonder whether um, embracing rare diseases and having a paradigm for illustrating that this is yet another example of the of, of, of the the breath of mankind might not also read to this ongoing evolution that overcomes the tension that starts with an individual or a small group saying anything outside is bad to saying outside envelope is being pushed more and more and more and is really a global envelope. So maybe that's more inspirational more than anything else, but, but, but I, I do take comfort from our fairly rapid advance from kinships to nation states. And I don't really worry too much about the ambivalence we have between nation states and global communities. I, I think digitization will, will take care of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I get, I sort of have the feeling that we've in our development in, as societies from small tribal groups to these huge cities, we've almost outpaced our ability to evolve, to, to manage all of that. And I'm, you know, I'm, a lot of people talk about the, the, the amount of input that any one person has in a day is orders of magnitude more than it was 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and a few hundred years ago. Um, so, so I, I think this, this idea that we're being exposed to so many more things is very helpful, but it seems like there's also a pushback now. There seems to be more nationalism, more extremism. I mean, we see that in America, we see that in many countries, in Europe, all over the world. Um, so I, I wonder how this can be overcome and whether we're sort of diverging on divergent paths where people are going to almost, almost back to sameness being with people who think the same way as them, whether that's we like a lot of diversity or we don't like any diversity. So any, any thoughts from the, the panel in the last few minutes? I'm going to choose someone if nobody speaks. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming back actually to what I said earlier. I believe maybe the way to navigate this is uh, through persistent small doses instead of of whopping doses Mm. that come out of the blue. Uh, We need uh, to um, uh, adjust, so to speak, the stimulus so that is uh, uh, absorbed uh, by the society and the individuals. As uh, the Latins used to say, sola dosis facit venenum, which means the dose makes the poison. So if we Mm. If we adjust the dose, I think we would probably do okay. Mm -hmm. We need some buffers in there somewhere along the line. 
rather than being constantly bombarded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think back to what uh, Janus was saying, I think communication is, is important. Um, I think I think it was Johannes. Uh, I, 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 um, it seems that the the ability to sit down and talk to other people who are different from us uh, makes all the difference. And I think coming back to rare diseases, this is important as well, uh, because my impression of the rare disease community is they are very open to sharing and bringing understanding, um, but we're maybe not asking those questions. Um, so uh, we're we're. Close to being out of time, but I wanted to just ask if there's any final thoughts. Maybe we can go around. Uh, anything you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, Ines, maybe I, I'll pick on you first. <laughs> no, I was just, um, yes, also uh, picking on, what, on your last uh, comment about uh, communicating with people with rare diseases. And we, we have mentioned uh, social networks uh, with all the disadvantages they have. But I think I've seen more and more also how people use them to share their experience uh, as patients of uh, different kinds of pathologies. And I think this is helping everyone uh, very much, not only, of course, to identify the signs and to fight for uh, proper medical treatment, but also it helps people seeing that in a way they are probably uh, there is some 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 uniqueness because they, they, they are having this disease but they are also part of the same they they probably feel reassured uh, and also i think it helps um, uh, patients uh, progressing with their life finding comfort uh, so i also think that uh, there is some good in that and coming back to this uh, communication topic i think this is very important mm -hmm. absolutely ongoing discussion of diversity within the context, even of meds, um, I think is an important educational initiative that we should amp up. I think rare diseases offers an excellent perturbation to the system and forces us to go beyond the usual distribution that we are accustomed to. And if we could make the link that there is some continuity of process anyway, uh, manifesting uh, individuals that appear, whether at the genius level, at one rare level, or at a, a physical um, difference at another, uh, to, to recognize the continuity. And I say that, I'm just repeating for uh, my own preference, that a focus, a global focus on the capacity of the ordinary person to evaluate information and so be able to impose on that information some priority in terms of its validity and therefore usefulness in making a rational decision. I think it's a tool that will illuminate and make better even our, our conversations about rare disease, but all other big issues, climate change, um, COVID and so on. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Johannes, any last thoughts from you? Yes, and uh, uh, both uh, biological and social systems uh, collapse under sameness. There are many examples. For example, Sparta uh, collapsed uh, based on its insistence on sameness. They eventually ran out of Spartans. And um, uh, uh, conduct with uh, the different uh, brings uh, brilliant results. For example, if uh, Darwin had not taken the Beagle trip uh, to see the diverse fauna and flora in South America probably wouldn't have been a Darwin in the first place. And uh, rare is not rare, it's uh, the tip of the iceberg and it's part of a continuum. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, thank you. And Judith, I'll give you the last word. Uh, I couldn't be an oncologist without being an optimist. <laughs> what I can do today to help patients is so much different and so much more specific uh, than what we could do when I started in this field 40 years ago. And the same will be true for a lot of these other maladies that we once thought were totally untreatable and that we will learn how to treat them effectively. So uh, I, I am the optimist. Uh, look at where we've been with autism already in a relatively short time. Um, no, we don't have a cure. We don't totally understand it, but we definitely have more understanding. And if science can lead to more understanding about the differences as well as the sameness of, of human life, then we'll be fine. Great, thank you. Well, I love that optimistic note to end on. So 
Unfortunately, we are going to have to end there uh, as we are out of time. But many, many thanks to our panelists for being with us today. What a fascinating, engaging, incredible conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, we plan to continue this discussion next year, so look out for future events, uh, also at science.org slash webinars. Uh, if you'd like to send us your thoughts on this webinar, please email webinar at aaas.org. Uh, thank you once again to our wonderful panel uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>